her mere representation as that one lone black female in that space is indeed activism. So we have to be able to sort of reconceptualize and deconstruct also what we know about activism, I should say first and foremost. Good morning, afternoon, or evening from wherever you are tuning into today's podcast from. Welcome to the Sport, Social Justice, and Development Podcast, a podcast that aims to critically explore the utility of sport and other forms of physical activity, recreation, and leisure used around the world for developmental pursuits. To do this, we engage in exploratory and in-depth conversations with practitioners, researchers, organizational staff, and participants involved with sport, social justice, and development programs. Today, we'll be talking with Akila Carter-Francique, she, her pronouns, Executive Director of the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change, as well as Associate Professor of the Department of African American Studies at San Jose State University. We'll be talking about Black sportswomen activists in the light of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. So thank you so much for joining me today, Akila, just you and me. Um, but I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and just give a quick overview of the work that you're currently doing. Oh, well, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's always exciting to um, you know, share work, but be asked to share your work. You know, we're in this space oftentimes as academics, and I've been been doing this for a while. We write those articles, put them in a chapter, put them in a book, they go on a shelf. <laughs> so nobody, nobody really hears from us. So it's such a joy to be able to, um, you know, be on this platform, talk with you and, and share some of those experiences. But currently, uh, I serve as the executive director, as you said, for the Institute for the Study of Sports, Society and Social Change at San Jose State University. Um, in addition to that role, uh, I am an associate professor in the Department of African American Studies. So I'm currently, I'm going to talk about my teaching a little bit first before I go into what things are, are happening at the Institute. But uh, currently, this semester, I'm teaching a course, uh, FM 158 in the Department of African American Studies on race, sport, activism, and social movements. It's really exciting because it's an opportunity to share the history of Black athlete involvement in advocacy and activism from a historical perspective to a contemporary perspective, um, but at the same time, have an opportunity to utilize that course to share some of those best practices in organizing, which I think some people may overlook as they think about the activist efforts of our, our Black athletes like 1968 Smith and Carlos, but to understand with that Olympic project for human rights and that protest on that stage in Mexico um, in 1968, that there were individuals behind them, Dr. Harry Edwards, Dr. Ken Noel, um, those uh, professors and students and faculty that all came together um, and with the Olympic Committee for Human Rights to really forge that. So I'm having an opportunity to share that history with students um, that are taking this course, not only from the Department of African American Studies, but the course is currently designated as our general education course. So it's in our core curriculum under area F for ethnic studies. So I have students from first year to fourth year to even a couple of graduate students that are taking this course from all academic majors. 
So it's a great joy to be able to have those discussions, those robust discussions in diverse ways and talk about how each of them, even with their respective academic um, efforts and uh, desires career-wise, um, are able to be in this space and come together, much like those activist movements back in the day where you had those that were speakers, those that were teachers, those that were um, you know, organizers, those that were lawyers that all came together to work for this common cause. So that's the course and I just had to highlight it. So, so thank you um, for that opportunity. But in my role as well as the executive director for the Institute, all types of things have been going on. So the Institute was started in 2017 by Dr. Harry Edwards. I did not come in to serve as the executive director until the fall of 2019. And so prior to my arrival, the Institute had four robust and just heartfelt uh, discussions with thought leaders, athletes, professional athletes, um, to talk about issues of uh, activism, sport activism in particular from the Black athletic framework, to talk about LGBTQ plus issues, to talk about gender equity, and also to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 1968 Olympics as well. Um, since my time there, uh, it was quite interesting. Started off, as I say, sort of outside, because in 2020, we know what happened, COVID came. Um, and it was important for me to find a way to continue that town hall, but do so in such a way that um, was also in alignment with our COVID dynamics. And that was living in a virtual space. Um, and so many, I believe in the beginning were sort of hesitant, but we had to learn to sort of embrace that. And so with that said, um, uh, started the, our Sport Conversations for Change, which started off as a weekly webinar, moved into a monthly webinar because COVID was here to stay. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was a great opportunity to bring, again, thought leaders, athletes, educators, um, different professionals, students into that space to share best practices, to share experiences, and to share insight on legislation or different policies or practices um, that individuals may not be um, privy of, but at the same time be able to disseminate that information worldwide so we can be on the same page in some of these robust discussions. Um, we launched our Sports Society and Social Change Conference um, in a virtual space. So we just finished year two at the, in the uh, gosh, at the end of the semester, actually in the month of October, I should say, um, of fall 2020. And since then, I've also collaborated with a lot of different organizations, whether on campus off campus, regionally, nationally, and internationally to highlight various issues when we talk about um, inequity in the sport realm. And so it's been some great conversations, whether it talk about race, gender, ability, um, things at the Olympic level, things at the high school level, um, concerns involving mental health and wellness, uh, but all things, again, for the work of social change. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your work. And I am so curious to hear about if you're um, teaching from the African cultural studies, as well as, uh, what did you say what the other program was? Well, um, I'm in the Department of African American Studies. And so within that, our department, along with Chicana, Chicana Studies, Asian Studies, Native American Studies, have come together to form this Ethnic Studies Collaborative which is some initiative and legislation that's been pushed in California, not only at the college level, but the high school level. And so with that said, what's come together is an area F focus on ethnic studies, 
within the curriculum for all of our students that are attending our university. So they they are um, you know charged with taking a course amongst a list of courses within that ethnic studies area um, of focus for their core curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so my course is listed as one of those. And so with that being said, um, it became an option for students across the university platform. Um, and so that is a, a great opportunity that I have students from across you know, various departments, um, various interests, various academic engagements and various um, career um, you know, endeavors. And so I, I, I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Um, and it's just great, as I said, they're, they're learning about black history, black athlete activism, civic engagement, if you will, but within that too, they're also learning how to organize and realizing too, we've got to use all of these different knowledges to be able to, to coordinate, to bring an issue to the fore. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think you were just talking about like conversations and how important that is for sharing knowledge. I think in the research space, like you said, a lot of our stuff gets shelved and forgotten about and there's nothing like conversations and, and ongoing relationships and conversations, I think. Um, I come from, uh, you know, a more sports studies space or not even it, the broad, the broad um, study of kinesiology and a lot. There's a lot of pushback I find with kinesiology students who maybe come from this idea that sport is not meant to be political, which is quite interesting. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on that and, and why you think, you know, sport is such an influential space for black activism. Well, to, to any students, again, I, I've got a kinesiology degree undergrad as well as a psychology degree undergrad. I was a double major. Uh, my master's is in kines exercise science uh, and even looking at uh, administration um, in those sporting spaces. And then my doctorate's in sports studies. But it's quite interesting with this sort of dialogue of sports doesn't need to be political. It's been political since the beginning. We're, we could look at the Olympic Games <laughs> and the political nature of the games and having different countries come and represent themselves and the medal count that we keep. I mean, if we just look back at um, a, a month ago, you know, we have our Olympic and we have our Paralympic Games. We are at the end of every day sort of recapping the medal count. Well, the medal count, why are we keeping count? <laughs> Over what country has more gold, silver, and bronze? There's that competition there. There's a political nature and undercurrent um, that's, that's definitely there. Um, if we look at various Olympic Games, either from the onset um, of the Olympic Games and this ideology of Pierre de Coubertin, or if we look at the 1936 Olympics, the Nazi Olympics, as it's also called, there's a very heavy political undercurrent. And that when we look at the, the medal count, if you will, and those numbers of, uh, of um, accolades, you know, Hitler utilized that, Adolf Hitler utilized that as a platform of not only that, that athletic um, superiority, but as a way to say that because our athletes are stronger, faster, you know, can jump higher or what have you, that also is a direct reflection of our military power. And so sports has always been a political space. So when I hear that sports doesn't need to be political, it shouldn't be political, we need people to kind of open a book, 
read a little bit, understand a little bit more about the significance of these sporting spaces from a historical standpoint to know that there is a there's deep ties politically. When we talk about the activism component as well, um, that's that's definitely a space. You know, our U.S. athletes were used historically and even today as political propaganda to say all is well in our particular country. And so those are some of the things and the stories and those narratives that need to be highlighted. And a number of Black athletes were utilized to share this message of racial solidarity that was happening in the U.S. or that they wanted to sort of put off and that was happening in the U.S. and that all was well. But again, why we see some of those that pushed back and resisted against that, that notion because all was not well. I can go out and perform as a Black athlete for the country and represent the country on this global platform. But once I come home, I'm not allowed into restaurants. I can't sit at the table. We have white water fountains. We have, at then the terminology used was colored water fountains. So there was a direct separation of even just citizenry in the U.S. And so that's why we have sort of this, this, um, this notion of even utilizing this particular space, even when we talk about sport, because sport was a space too, a cultural space that Blacks were quote unquote allowed to be in, because in that cultural space was this notion of in- entertainment. Mm-hmm. You're entertaining the masses we're working for others, serving as labor. My dear academic father, who I call him, Dr. Billy Hawkins, wrote a book called The New Plantation, The Colonization of the Black Male Athlete, and aligning this notion that the Black college athlete experience in many ways replicated the notion of being labor, slave labor on a plantation um, in those NCAA spaces, right? So, you know, and with that, I think it sort of speaks to um, the lived experience, but why um, athletes have utilized their platform, not only in the space of sport and speaking up and speaking out about inequities in the sporting spaces, but utilize those particular platforms to speak out on the broader social injustices that were taking place when we talk about racism, when we talk about economic inequalities, when we talk about not having access to housing, not having access to employment. And so these athletes taking back their power, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. To utilize their platform and those opportunities when they were on the podium in their respective places to say, you know, all is not well in the US or all is not uh, equal as far as representation of black coaches, all is not <laughs> fair when it comes to legislation and having voting rights. Absolutely. Um, sport is such a fascinating visible platform, I think, like compared to a lot of platforms that like we consume, I, I suppose. And like, I don't know, the, the, the visibility of bodies, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the particular experience of Black sports women activists. Um, I know last time we spoke, you um, mentioned the chapter that you wrote 
influencing at the intersections of Muhammad Ali and Africana cultural memory. Um, editors James Con Conyers. Mm -hmm. James Conyers. Thank you. Yeah, he passed away last year. So, you know, condolences to family and friends, but he's he was a dear colleague, a, a great leader and did a lot of great work. And so this was um, a, a, a chapter that I had written in this particular book, but the third book that I had had a chapter in to really kind of talk about and unpack some of the lived experiences of Black women athletes. So um, again, uh, thanks to, to him for his leadership and his vision and those efforts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think what the, the point that you brought up about the, how Black sports women in particular are, um, or their perspectives are, are pushed aside or often seen as invisible or not present when compared to like black sports men activists that are the uh, voices that we um, assume are the black activists present in sport. Um, but yes, I was wondering if you could just speak more to why like that particular intersection of gender and race are so important. Yeah, um, gosh, you know, when we talk about the experiences of black women in these activist spaces, I think one of the things we have to understand is that whether in sp sport was one space in which black women were very active, but black women have been um, advocates and activists outside of sport mm. for, for decades. <laughs> and in many ways we're socialized into that space because historically we've lived on the margins mm -hmm. as black women and living at the intersections of of racial and gender marginality. In other words, from a gendered perspective, because woman, we are within this social construction of gender, we are considered less than that of man, right? Um, or subordinate, if you will. Um, and in this uh, social construction space of race, um, as black, we're considered subordinate as well to white being that norm or that standard, male being that norm or that standard just like other religions are deemed the norm or standard, or even um, heterosexism is deemed the norm and standard when it comes to sexual orientation. So Black women are living at the intersection and being in this social constructed space uh, in the U.S. and in other countries as well, I have to be mindful of that, um, we are rendered silent. Our voices are not often heard. Um, if we do speak up, we don't want to talk about it. You know, we don't we don't want to bring that particular voice or perspective to the fore. At the same time, we're invisible. So you're not seeing us out. You know, um, we are there, but those images aren't necessarily captured um, from a photography space or not being filmed in that respect. And so that that notion of subordination of marginalization uh, were are repeated in these sporting spaces when it comes to sport activism as well. Um, but I, I, I unearthed some of those lived experiences and those amazing women that have done just that amazing um, work and leading the way when we think about um, Louise Stokes and Theodora Tidy Pickett. Those are some amazing accomplished women that competed at one of the first Olympics. Um, but due to, again, experiencing their own racism to their white female counterparts, um, you know, received some ridicule and black backlash, had to stay in different living spaces to even go to the games. Um, just differential treatment by teammates, by coaches and saying, okay, well, we, we're going to, even, I know you're faster, 
well, we're going to run an all-white squad <laughs> at the Olympic Games. And so some of those, those lived realities, we have to understand, too, that even the notion of activism, the notion of, of, of you know, political engagement in that respect was from this dominant lens of activism looks like being on the front lines. Activism looks like marching, if we think of Dr. King. Activism looks a certain way. But when we look at Black women's activism, and I had to go and do some reading and homework on my own to understand that Black women's activism, again, as I said, in many ways started from when we were born. We've lived on the margins. We've been socialized in a way to advocate for our communities, advocate for ourselves. So as we're standing up and speaking out, in many ways, it's not just for us, it's for our children, right? It's for our loved ones when we're talking about education. I was born and raised in Topeka, Kansas. I'm thinking about Brown v. Board of Education, if you will. But women were working in these spaces, serving as organizers, as I think of Ella Baker and the work with, that she did with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You know, I'm thinking of those that um, served as voices and they may have, um, you know, written articles served as, you know, the, the legal spaces if we start to move through time, um, working in spaces and places, being the uh, representation of one, and many not understanding her mere representation as that one lone Black female in that space is indeed activism. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to sort of reconceptualize and deconstruct also what we know about activism, I should say, first and foremost, and then reconceptualize what we understand about activism and understand that it is a, a broad range of active um, and of efforts that, that go into what activism looks like. So when people think about activism, and that was something I think I even wrote in this particular um, chapter, was I was asked at some, at some point, you know, why don't um, more Black women sacrifice like Black men? in these different efforts. I'm like, do you know how much sacrifice we had to put through of, of, of not being on the front lines, of having to, um, you know, be, you know, put in position that we've had to sort of make some choices about, you know, where we are in this, or of course, speaking up, but someone else perhaps taking credit, you know, for it. And so our activism looks differently and what we sort of even value about the black female body is less than that of a black man, a white woman, a white man, okay? And so I think all of that sort of comes into play when we talk about black women's activism, but we have been led by some of the, the most amazing, uh, you know, women in these spaces and places. And I think of, you know, um, I think of Effa Manley, you know, I think of Ora Washington, I think of Althea Gibson, I think of Jackie Joyner-Kersey, I think of Sanya Tyler, I think of uh, Tina Sloan Green, Alpha Alexander, Nikki Frank, Linda Green, when we talk about the Black Women's Sports Foundation and that pioneering effort in the U.S. Um, uh, so there's a number of amazing women, but even so, the, the names still keep calling when we think about um, Flo Hyman and her efforts as a volleyball player for my alma mater, U of University of Houston, 
But just that notion of, you know, her advocacy for women's rights and and, and Title IX, um, you know, being a, a catapult into National Girls and Women in Sports Day, which we just celebrated in February, or the efforts of Don Staley, of Simone Biles, of Brittany Griner. These are women that have been at the fore of Gwen Berry. Okay. So there's a number of women out there, and I have not named nearly all of them, but have definitely contributed to the narrative of Black athlete activism throughout time. I really appreciate you naming, you know, all of the the sports women that come to your mind. And like you said, there are tons more, but I think in reading your chapter, like that was such an informative way, you know, just finding a name, Googling more, like learning more about their story. That's so important because those like are the names that, you know, aren't included in our classes and mm-hmm. um, and in our in our history when we talk about sport activism, absolutely. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I encourage listeners, of course, like do the, do the work and like look up these amazing activists. Cause like you said, that the activism looks so different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often not, you know, as glamorized, I think. Right. Well, and again, it's, 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 it's the notion of, you know, I, I think also looking for some of that, that standard. And if we, in, in some ways I think about it, if we put black women on a pedestal, then, then that has to then become the norm. And then we have to sort of address not only her, her issues in that moment, but her issues outside of sport and what she does and doesn't have access to and the other inequities that she has perhaps experienced um, in, in some of these spaces. And I think they speak to a lot to this notion of equity, diversity, and inclusion. You know, we're, we're going to attend to issues that are most, you know, that, that most of us experience, not those that are on the margins. Um, and so um, we could go on for, for, for days and weeks to kind of talk about and unpack some of those things. But I think what I appreciate about these women in these spaces especially for me as a black woman, raising a black woman, a little girl that I have, right? Um, To be able to have an example of me, to have a representation of me, helps me not only understand my history, but from where I came from, but also my purpose as I begin to move in my own pathway and begin to state claim, begin to identify um, or in as many ways walk in my respective purpose, because I know that I've, I'm, I'm standing on shoulders, but I'm also, I come from a richness. I come from a greatness. And that just can really, in many ways, bolster your confidence in some of these spaces and places where you may have to walk in as an N of one, where you may have to um, be that initial person. Because yes, we're still in a space where our vice president is the first, <laughs> you know, first woman, first black, first Asian, you know, in those spaces. And so what does that experience consist of? How will I navigate it? Can I do this? Can I embody this? I've gone to school. I've trained. I've volunteered. I've got 25 years of experience. Um, <laughs> am I, you know, I know I'm worthy of being, I know I'm worthy and qualified. I should to be in this space, but it's also public opinion. It's also history. It's also standards and norms that um, we're often trying to overcome as we're doing the work 
-hmm. in those respective spaces and places. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm just thinking about like that idea of being so representational first and how much labor that is. Um, and yes, despite like, you know, all these EDI, these discussions on EDI and representation, and, and that's not to say like the importance of representation, like, of course we need representation, but we, we often forget like that that's not enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I think something that I encounter so frequently, especially with those who don't inhabit these identities is this discomfort around, um, you know, engaging in conversations about and with, you know, black folks, um, this sort of like hand, very hands off, like, I don't, I don't know what to say about it. So I'm not going to comment sort of thing. And so, right. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess I'm wondering like what sort of structures you think should be in place to avoid that, dis or not necessarily, I think discomfort is good, but what sort of structures should, do you think needs to be in place to, you know, further actively support our, especially black women, like representational firsts? So I operate from, again, an intersectionality lens, um, you know, in many ways, following the the efforts and pioneering work of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, mm -hmm. um, it's talking about structural um, barriers, talking about political barriers, talking about representational barriers. And so that's really how I start to look at it and unpack, okay, what's going on structurally in our dynamics? And it becomes those things of what are those norms and standards that have been set? And how can we go back and start changing some of these things and reimagining it? Mm -hmm. You know, looking at the, seeing the work of like C. Wright Mills and that the sociological imagination, but the need to reimagine what norms are. You know, this was set back then, but what was the context? What was the period? What was the circumstance that that became the norm, that that became the standard? So us needing sort of to change um, with our times and be cognizant, yes, of our history, but also be cognizant of where we're trying to go. Um, and so I look at some of the structural dynamics of, of, uh, you know, when we talk about race, what that standard is, when we talk about gender, when we're looking at sexuality, um, uh, sexual orientation, expression, those things become in mind. Other things I look at are the political aspects. So in one way you can change, um, you know, some part of your structure, uh, but there's still other parts of it that need to be examined. But how are we going to ensure that that structure won't change again? That's when we go into our sort of legislative efforts, our policies, to be able to review those particular policies to ensure accountability, but also to ensure that we're following this, this thing that we said we're going to change. And so it doesn't go back because then we're, we're putting into a rule, right, or a policy to say that this is what we must adhere to based on our mission statement based on you know what what parameters we've set into place and then after we look at structure and and even you know those policies those begin to provide space and opportunity for um equitable representation and representation in the sense of yes you are having uh you know access to uh different positions opportunities to interview <laughs> Um, opportunities for promotion, things that will begin to set into place to ensure that we don't receive, you know, negative treatment in these spaces, mm -hmm. that we are um, in in compliance with equitability across the board to have access to training, 
that would allow us to be promoted in these respective spaces that then move up the ladder to have, again, start to increase these representational numbers. So instead of having single digits, we're having double and triple digits in these spaces. And, and again, representation that is on par with what has been that historical standard. And so, you know, it's, it's my role of sort of looking at those things when I go into um, perhaps uh, examining an organization, helping with EDI efforts, um, being able to guide organizations in um, reviewing their policies and practices, and in some ways even guiding organizations, educating organizations, um, illuminating other organizations and offices that definitely drill down boots on the ground that can walk them through step by step so they can move from this exclusionary environment, move from an environment of compliance into really a transformational organization that is uh, valuing this notion of sort of multiculturalism Mm. in their spaces and places. Mm. It sounds exhausting. Like this is so much labor, you know? It is. Yeah. yeah. It, it is. It is. Um, but when you live in these spaces and when you live on the margins, I think it's one that even as I look back at our historical civil rights pioneers, mm-hmm. our activists for feminist issues, our activists for LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQ plus um, issues, It's one that, yes, it is a labor-intensive space, but when you're in many ways fighting for self Mm. and fighting for your future selves, it's it's not that much of a labor. Mm. And then it also speaks to why we work as a collective Mm. in these efforts. No one person can do this alone. There may be a spokesperson for the the group organization, But we're doing this in in concert and in connection and in community with others that also believe that these issues are of importance because this one thing that we may be fighting for can affect the whole family, can affect the whole community. Um, And the collectivist approach towards remedying um, these inequities uh, also creates the opportunity to, yes, maybe, okay, you know, our our first wave of attack will be this, our next is going to this. So we're passing, I was a track and field athlete, so I use this terminology or not, we're passing the baton to either the next group to pick up and and run the next leg, or we're passing the baton to the next generation Mm -hmm. to ensure, as we look at even in this 50th year of Title IX, that we're continuing to push back and to push against this historical inequities that are taking place and that are, um, you know, woven into the very embodiment of <laughs> our American institutions um, that we have when we talk about Title IX specifically. But even with that Title IX, you know, great piece of legislation, unintended consequences, but at the same time, it also only sort of creates this notion of, of promoting equitable policies and practices in K-12 institutions, Mm. sort of in these educational spaces. Mm. But once you graduate from school and you go into the workforce, 
you don't have that same legislation of a Title IX sort of protecting you. Mm-hmm. So how do we sort of remedy those those challenges as well? Mm-hmm. You made me think of like how much energy I get from like these conversations and just hearing other people's work who also like you know like you said the labor is labor but also it's just my experience so why wouldn't like this is just the work that I want to you know pass the baton on and and so forth but then I also see the importance of you know safe space um like having your own space that you don't need to you know try to work within our white dominated and uh, institutions and so I guess I'm wondering like if you have any examples of of those spaces that you've really cherished and like that gave you the you know that energy yeah well well one uh you know being a student athlete I was at University of Houston surrounded by some amazing just athletes period but but black women that were you know a year or two older than me that took me under their wing and created that that environment that really began to nurture me just as a young athlete. Um, of course, I think about my mother and my aunts and my godmothers and all those types of things. Um, but taking all that in, and again, the musings of my own upbringing, this notion of community other mothering, I sort of took that notion into um, my own doctoral space, um, in particular coming out of knowing that there, there was a need to continue that nurturing. So through my dissertation, I began to see um, in examining my participants, it was entitled Negotiating Identities, Examining you know, African-American Female um, uh, College Athlete Experiences at Predominantly White Institutions, and really trying to see, well, what methods do they use to stay in community? And at the time, there was about a 10-year gap between my time competing and the 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 particular um, participants I was in communication with. And I was seeing this disconnect of it wasn't really a community anymore. There was some fractionization, um, which I think in many ways fell in uh, in alignment with um, collegiate athletics being siloed. Siloed from the general body, but also siloed within the sporting space itself and that those respective teams were not in communication often with one another. And I'm like, how can you do that when in some of these institutions, you've got, say, 48,000 students of those 48,000, let's just say 800 are student athletes of those 800 student athletes, 50 of them are black women. That's a very small, minute number for you not to be in community with one another. And so with that, um, communicated with one of my, my dear colleagues, uh, Dr. Denise Dorch, and we started a program called Sister to Sister, which was a, you know, monthly um, culturally relevant sort of leadership program that was voluntary. They could come in, but we had a set curriculum and we would talk about different topical um, areas, but I wanted them to learn how to be in community with one another mm-hmm. and to know that you have each other to lean on. Um, so that space was created, but then even on my own, being that I was a, a professor in a predominantly white space um, and, and <laughs> one of few black women, in those sporting spaces, we're always sort of an N of one, came together with some amazing Black women as well. We call ourselves Sister Docs. Um, and so with that, we are in communication. We're at, we're all at different universities. We're the only one. We're navigating these spaces, not only as, as Black women, not only as professors, but as mothers, as partners, 
as senior caretakers. We've had great experiences. We've had some life challenges, but we navigate through that space together and stay in communication and utilize that collective mindset, even though we're geographically separated, to continue to keep us fed and nurtured in these spaces and places. Because again, it's something about that lived experience that we have that is sort of unique to us. Um, and of course, we got mom and cousins and sisters and things like that. They're outside of the academy, but having that group within the academy is also very helpful to be able to navigate these spaces. And you know, I'm, I'm away at it, traveling at a conference currently, and I've met some new or rising junior scholars. And I'm letting you know, call me. I'm like, I just told them. I said, open your phone. Here's my phone number. And they're like, what? Just you don't need it. <laughs> I mean, I want everybody definitely to have their own journey. But at the same time, there's no need to go into spaces blind. And one of the things I, that did come out of my dissertation was the notion of having coping styles and coping strategies to help navigate those spaces and places to preserve them in those spaces. It is difficult when you're navigating in those spaces. Sometimes you can get out of those spaces, but sometimes you can't. So how are we going to continue to, to thrive in those spaces and to sort of nurture our own selves protect ourselves in those spaces. So those have been a couple of ways that um, I've, I've worked to sort of create those spaces or find that that I start building my own community, which goes back again, not only to, to activists other mothering, right? Coming together and fighting for the community, but again, that notion of community other mothering as uh, Dr. Patricia Hill Collins talks about, you know, in her work when we talk about Black feminist thought. Mm. Oh, I love that. It's just such a lovely way to organize, I think. Just, you know, it's the simple, like, here's my number, just do with it what you want, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that must be like, yeah, it's just, there's just like a certain comfort, I think, to be able to connect like informally about, mm -hmm. yeah, things that oftentimes you're like, am I the only one around here who, who is experiencing this? There must be. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you feel like, you feel like that being an N of one and then not seeing anybody else you feel like you are. And so that's the reason too, that I show up at conferences mm. say here, here I am. Um, if I can be of help, know that I'm here. Mm. You know, if you've got other mentors, that's great. Use me if you need me, even if it's to get to the next thing, I'm okay with that. But nobody should have to take these journeys by themselves. Yeah. You know, somebody has been there before you and know your experience will not be the exact same as mine, but there are going to be some similarities when we talk about that. And again, Collins talks about this when we talk about the importance of Black womanhood, mm -hmm. right? Um, that we have not the same experience, but we have shared experiences and ways to navigate these particular spaces. Mm -hmm. So when you have these individuals in front of you that are saying, call me, you know, do it. <laughs> it may just, it may be to provide advice. It may just merely to be to listen. You know, because um, sometimes I, I offer nothing. I'm just like, I hear you. Mm. Because you don't have to explain the experience and justify and then be told, well, no, you're imagining things, as I've been told many times by non-Black women, you know. It's like a different sense of relief to just be heard, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't even need to hear advice. It's just like, I know. I know exactly right. what you're saying. I just wanted to leave space, like, if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about or add to this conversation. You know, this this is such <laughs> a deep one. I think we need a part three and four, <laughs> uh, two, three and four. But I think the thing is, you know, 
a lot of people want to know, well, how can I help? Mm. How can I be an ally? And so I'll go back even to Dr. Conyers, you know, being able to put a collection of books together mm. and talk to, you know, Black women or women of color, say, hey, can you contribute? Because you're not only contributing as that representation, but you're also telling the stories and telling our truth that can be shared and disseminated with others. Mm. So that's, you know, one way to say, utilize your particular platform. Um, as I talk about, I, I'm, I'm big on mentoring. And sometimes, yes, we need those mentors, but also to know that in some ways, you know, mentoring is great, but learning to be um, a sponsor of someone. So working with a woman of color in this space, a black woman and saying, hey, this is, you know, I know her, she's coming in. This is what we're going to do, A, B, C, and D. Or to be champions. You may not be able to be in the position to perhaps be in that same institution, but you know how to cheer for somebody and say, you know what, let me let me come to you here. There's this position here. I want you to apply for it. I'm rooting for you. I'm on the committee or I know the committee or I've been in this space before. This would be a great place for you. So mentoring is such value. Serving as a sponsor is great value. Serving as a champion is also of great value. In addition to that, I think some of the basics are listen. Mm. Listen and believe. And, and I, I'll just leave it with that. There's more explaining that can definitely be done because you know you get into those spaces. I think you're imagining that. I don't think that's what they meant. <laughs> and I'm like, until you've lived at the margins and felt and been the recipient of racist, sexist, connotations you don't really know so just listen be that person of support and take us at face value mm. you know so th those are some 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 again i think some <laughs> new conversation starters <laughs> um that can be had but um you know there, there's a lot of work still to be done we're in a space right now that i think is a, a great space to be in because we're in a place where I think people are willing to listen mm -hmm. when we talk about being in this, this um, modern day civil rights movement of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. being in this space where organizations are taking, I believe, a collective uh, examination or re-examination of their own structures, of their own policies, of their own represent representation and representational, um, representational personnel within their office to look at, are these you know practices that we have equitable? Um, do they promote diversity? Do they encourage inclusion in this space? I think we're in a good space for that. Um, but in order for those things to continue on, in many ways, you know, creating those policies and changing those structures also require those very people that you're trying to advocate for. Mm. Some try to do this work and do it without us mm -hmm. at the table. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to be open and understand you can't always speak for another. They need to have a be a voice at the table to help redress these inequities that are taking place. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just a few pieces, you know, depending on the industry, um, depending on um, the organization, uh, it, it will vary and, and change um, as to what that looks like. 
but uh, we've got to be, you know, mindful that um, black women, they are of value. Mm-hmm. They have a voice and we're seeing now, again, I, I called those names earlier, those historic women, but even our present day women that are doing some phenomenal things, you know, and, and um, working towards um, and have been in the trenches, but also slowly some, some of those individuals have been, um, you know, achieved these leadership roles serving in these great spaces, our owners of teams, if we talk about sport, you know, um, are achieving some, but we need more than just one, Mm. you know? And so um, I think, again, it's a great moment and uh, understand that at the end of the day, at least why I do what I do is so my daughter can have a good experience. Mm can have an opportunity, can have access to be what she wants to be and to walk in confidently and proud and not walk in with a coat of armor before she ever gets started and gets a word out of her mouth. So, cause she's great. She's awesome. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, to be, you know, loud and, and, and proud and not, you know, be, be told yeah to be believed I guess and, and not yeah. stereotypes for being angry or bitchy or for you know whatever stereotypes yeah we didn't even get into the stereotypes I got I, <laughs> I, I wrote on that as well so <laughs> I wrote about you know write about those myths and those stereotypes there's so many different complex nuances um of of our lived experience but they're all of value so continue to unearthing being those voice finding platforms like this. So I thank you to be able to share those narratives, um, those histories, those experiences, um, those pioneering women, those modern day leaders is is of importance to show that, you know, oh, there's no interest. Yes, there is. (laughs) They've been doing this work. They're all right here, actually. So (laughs) you can go to any one of them. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, it's a time right now that we have to, be reflective. We have to acknowledge um, the the presence and the efforts that have been made, and um, no longer silence these women, mm-hmm. no longer render them invisible, uh, and celebrate them. Thank you so much for sharing for sharing all your knowledge, but also sharing like you know the ways that we don't traditionally think of um, activism and organizing, like mentoring, you know, I, that really is something I, I will remember from today. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to share all of this. Thank you so much. So yes, thank you so much for joining us today, Akila. And thank you for those of you listening in and taking your time to tune in. Make sure to give us a follow on our Twitter at Sport, Social Justice and Development if you haven't already. And stay tuned for our next episode coming out next month. And thanks again for being in conversation with us. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Broke for Free.